Hello, everybody. Good evening. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, my name is Lauren Rosati, and I'm the Curatorial Assistant in Modern and Contemporary Art here at the National Academy. I'd like to welcome you all here tonight to the first review panel of 2013. This event occurs once a month here at the National Academy Student Gallery and is organized in partnership with artcritical.com. And it's generously supported by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council on the Arts. Tonight's panelists will discuss several exhibitions currently on view in galleries around New York, though I encourage you all to see the exhibitions currently on view in our own museum, the annual, uh, which features 70 works by national academicians and seismic shifts, 10 visionaries in contemporary art and architecture. On February 27th, we will host our first event in connection with these shows titled Art, Politics, and Protest. It's a conversation with National Academician Faith Ringgold, uh, Professor Emeritus at Princeton University, Dr. Cornell West, and art historian, Dr. Leslie King-Hammond. And information on this program and other programs in connection with our exhibitions are available at the front desk on your way out. But now for the review panel. So please join me in welcoming tonight's guests, as well as moderator David Cohen, publisher and editor of artcritical.com. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. I, uh, I reckon there are two options this evening to stay warm. One is to stay warm at home, and the other is to stay warm where the, uh, where the debate is hot. So you've, uh, you intrepid folk have taken the latter option. Do raise your hands, please, if this is the first time you've attended a review panel. Excellent. Well, lovely to see new faces, and uh, for your benefit, and to remind those of us who may have forgotten the format over the Christmas break, let me, let me run through what we do here at the review panel. You've had a chance, the audience, to go and see four exhibitions, as have we, the panel. And uh, we're paid to do so, so hopefully we have seen them. So... <laughs> The format is simplicity itself. I have a short PowerPoint presentation that shows a couple of the shows, uh, rather just offers some slides of a couple of the shows. We, the panel, discuss those two shows among ourselves for a little while. We ask you, the audience, to let off some steam and tell us what you think about what we've been saying and what you think about those shows. And then we repeat the exercise for the next two exhibitions. So, my first duty, my first pleasure, is to introduce this evening's panelists. Uh, two are returnees, and one is being welcomed to the review panel for the first time, Paddy Johnson. Peter Plagans, to, uh, to the left of me, from your point of view, uh, is a painter uh, who also writes art criticism. Currently, he contributes a bi-weekly column to, uh, of New York Gallery reviews to the Wall Street Journal. His book on Bruce Nauman will be published by Feiden in December, and his next solo exhibition will open in April at the Texas Gallery in Houston, Texas. Paddy Johnson is the founding editor of Art Fag City and the arts editor of L Magazine. That's L the letter, not L the feminine pronoun, one would hasten to add, although one would be equally uh, curious to know her views in either publication. Um, in addition to her work on the blog, uh, she's been published in magazines such as New York Magazine, The Economist, and The Guardian, and her blog has been linked to prestigious publications such as The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The All. Uh, she lectures widely about art and the internet, prestigious venues. She's the, uh, the first person to receive the um, uh, Creative Capital Art Writers Grant 
as, a, as a blogger, and she uh, received a scholarship to attend the iCommons conference in Croatia as their art critic in 2007. And she's been nominated for Best Art Critic at the Rob Pruitt Art Awards in 2010. And David Brody is an artist and writer living like Paddy in Brooklyn, New York. His most recent solo exhibition, painting exhibitions have been at Pierogi Gallery in Brooklyn and sometimes works of art, the project space run uh, by James Siena, the artist in uh, his uh, building. Um, he's installed wall drawings at the Drawing Center and the Brooklyn Museum, and his digital animations have been screened at the Reina Sofia Museum, MoMA, and the Centre Georges Pompidou in Paris, and there's an upcoming screening at the National Gallery in Washington. His art criticism is primarily published at Art Critical, and he has also written for Cabinet Magazine, Bomb, the Brooklyn Rail, and he published an interview with Philip Taff um, in the latter's 10-year retrospective at IMA, the Irish Museum of Modern Art, in Dublin. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome this distinguished panel. So the first two shows we're going to look at and discuss are Francis Lise at uh, David Zwerner Gallery and Song Dong at Pace Gallery. Great, thank you. Perhaps just a technical point. Uh, some of those images of Song Dong are of um, obviously earlier uh, uh, photographs of earlier installations or iterations of various works which were actually displayed slightly differently at Pace Gallery in terms of orientation or in, in, in the calligraphy piece uh, in terms of actual um, how much was displayed. But I think the, um, the photographs give some indication of what's going on. For the David Zwerner uh, exhibition, uh, the, <clears throat> without actual video to show you, one rather skips what is perhaps the main event, and um, therefore the, the slides give a, more of a representation of what's the, uh, the arguably the ancillary event. Um, but that's, that's uh, already for the moderator to impose a value judgment on what should actually be uh, subjects of discussion. Some of you may have been wondering why these are viewed in silence, not even with a, uh, a harmonica accompanying it. But um, uh, that's because in the early days when, when I used to say, when I used to actually give some titles and description as the, uh, the movie was, as the projection was proceeding, inevitably just even the tiniest inflection of the voice could be interpreted as, as, a, as a, an interpretation or a, a, a note of disdain. So thus the neutrality, the cold neutrality of that display. Well, ladies and gentlemen and panel, um, the review panel sometimes likes to get to big survey exhibitions like the Whitney Biennial um, um, that take place around New York. And it just occurred to me today as I was wandering around uh, a frigid Chelsea for a last look at these shows, uh, that inadvertently uh, we're taking ourselves uh, even in, in, in two fragments to back to Documenta uh, of uh, last summer uh, in that, the, um, in that uh, both Song Dong and uh, uh, Francis Elise are represented uh, in these New York shows um, by pieces that debuted and obviously enjoyed a different kind of context um, at the uh, four yearly major arts event in Kassel, Germany, Documenta, Documenta 13. So in the case of Francis Elise, there was uh, quite a, uh, an emphasis on Afghanistan in 
documented with a whole uh, former lunatic asylum turned over to um, various uh, internet connections to uh, Kabul for various projects uh, to represent uh, Afghanistan in um, <clears throat> a, a cultural forum where Afghanis don't usually make much impact. Um, so I wonder, uh, so we're seeing whether that's relevant or not, uh, a film by uh, Elise uh, here in New York that, that came from Documenta. Um, what was the sense of, uh, I think for me the crucial question would be what, what, what one senses uh, that Elise was doing in Afghanistan? What, what's, what, what is Afghanistan to Elise? What is Elise to Afghanistan? Um, Peter, any thoughts on that? <laughs> I don't know. That would be taking a, 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 a flyer about, you know, his relationship to Afghanistan as a whole. I thought that the that the uh, end title um, notation of what inspired, if that's the right word, the film, the Taliban destroying the prints of films in the in the National Archive, was fairly particular. You know, and so I I saw it not having ever been to Kabul, um, which I have to say as as I, I felt kind of wimpy because I was rather astonished at how forbidding it was in a certain you know in a certain way. Um, I'd never seen it photographed like that before, but I thought it was a particular political point about what the Taliban had done, and then you know commenting against it by using future generations, you know, kids, uh, in whom there is hope. That's as far as I could take it. Yes. Did you feel, um, uh, Paddy, that you were getting, um, that, that you were getting a sort of exoticized view of Afghanistan, or did it feel very real and uh, pertinent, tangible? Um? I don't know. I mean, I thought I'd... Uh... I haven't been to Afghanistan, so I, I'm not exactly an expert on, um, uh, you know, what the culture is there. But uh, it did see it did. There was sort of a life to that film that I um, that I thought was good. Um, I mean, just in case anybody here hasn't been, um, and you know, you were not really aware of exactly what was uh, going on. It's really a film that tracks um, to. Uh, uh, reels of film being both um, unreeled um, by children and and simultaneously uh, reeled up. So you see the editing um, go back and forth between the two. And the and the first shot in the film is this shot of these kids playing um, with a hoop. So the idea here is that these kids are doing with this film what they have always, with this film reel, what they have always done, and the game has sort of continued. And I, I thought, like, for me, I thought um, that this uh, seems both specific to Afghanistan um, and the, the kind of games that those uh, kids might play, but also to Elise's work, because um, there, I, I don't know how many of you guys saw the uh, uh, PS1 MoMA retrospective of his work last year, but when I saw that, there was a real, um, I guess, kind of sense of uh, a Sisyphean, um, uh, I don't know, what is it, myth at play. So the idea that, like, um, 
we're going to, there's this like, um, but the Sisyphean myth is like, you have to imagine that this is Sisyphus very happy with his punishment of having to like roll something up and down a hill. Mm. So there's this like, here you have, um, I think the, the piece in particular that I was sort of reminded of was the, um, car that goes up and down the hill to the tune of a band music playing. So when the band music plays, um, the car goes up the hill, and the minute the, the music stops, the car just plummets down the hill. And this happens forever. And like when I was in that show, it was at MoMA. Like you saw all the kids, they were like delighted by this. Hmm. You know? And the critics, like I was out of there in two seconds. You know? But like you sort of think about that, and you think like, I, I sort of thought about that that particular piece in that interaction when mm -hmm. I was looking at the kids, um, you know, playing with a with a hoop because I thought that it was uh, um, that this was something that sort of spoke to a larger um, truth about I guess trying to find like this was a a game like a cycle. Right. Um, yes, David. Uh, uh, children. Uh, Peter sees them as a, a symbol of, of hope. Um, is there a childlike uh, quality to to Alice's film? I mean, we we also get another video uh, in the ante room to the main screening of uh, various kinds of children's games being played. Well, yeah, there's there's a direct reference in in the film to the red balloon. There's a balloon seller that appears in the, actually in the first shot in which you actually see the unrealer boy and the realer boy in the same place and time, and that's five minutes into the film. So uh, <clears throat> fic this film is very fictive. It's, it's actually a huge departure for, his uh, for Elise compared to his previous <clears throat> videos, which are essentially documents of actions. Uh, and that's how, it, that's how I took it at first. That's how I took real and real at first. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized the whole uh, length of this film, uh, they're going down one hill in Kabul and across uh, the main part of the city, avoiding trucks, going over Persian carpets, <laughs> crossing a bridge, and then going up the next hill. Uh, you never see the blue reel, the take-up reel in the front. Now, if you think about it, the, you know, every 400 feet, the blue reel is going to be full and the red reel is going to be empty, so they must have stopped put the film on cranks, cranked it onto the red reel, and, took, and set up the next shot. The whole film, thus, is a fiction. Hmm. And it's very different from the documents of uh, an action such as pushing a, an ice block through the streets of Mexico City until it melts, or hmm. moving the dune. Um, and when, once you realize how fictive the film is, and, that it, you know, and then you see the invocation of the red balloon, which is, of course, this tragic poetic uh, vision of boyhood, and it's also a portrait of a city. Uh, and Elise is interested, I think, in taking his, his sort of topological actions, these little ideas that he has. This, this idea originates in a little, uh, there's a small painting that was in the MoMA show of a, of a man unspooling a giant thread, uh, spool of thread on one panel and, and then spooling it in the next. And, and, and the question as, as to how those two little images are connected in space and time really, I think, is the genesis of this film, as far as I can tell. Because as I say, five minutes, it takes five minutes before you see the two boys in the same shot. So, so the, the, the integrity of this topological action, unspooling, spooling, is really uh, created by the editing. It's a fiction that you, you suspend your disbelief to believe it's really happening. There's only a couple of shots in the film where you actually can, and can see indeed that you know, he did set up one or two shots so that you can see the unreeling and the reeling. 
but for the rest of it, it the whole thing is, is a fable. Now, how does that make us look at something like, uh, at the beginning, you see, uh, you hear a helicopter, there's a shot looking through some wires with garbage on them, and you mm -hmm. finally pick out the helicopter. Reference to war, reference to the intrusions of sound and, and political space on these boys' lives. And then one of the boys does a framing gesture with his fingers, the way mm -hmm. the cameraman would. Now, if this had been a document, you could say, well, he was hanging around with the crew, and he saw them do that, and maybe they in a sim a very taste style, I just picked him up doing that. And what a beautiful poetic moment. The boy is actually defending himself from invasion with, with art. You know, he's picked this up from the crew, or maybe it's just native to him. But given the fictiveness of the film, in every other respect, you have to, you have to take that as something that's scripted, that, that at least told the boy to do, or at least you mm -hmm. suspect that it might be. And that changes the whole thing. And it I'll does feel there. a very scripted film to me. In fact, it, it, uh, it climaxes in this, the drama when the uh, unspooler un jumps, uh, cheats, as it were, and jumps onto a truck that's going up the hill, and the, the, the re-spooler uh, very heroically runs after the truck and carries on his spooling activity and then an even more dramatic moment occurs when uh, uh, the, uh, 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 the celluloid gets caught up in, in, a, in a little bonfire. Um, and, so it, it, and then that, that moment where the boy holds, or holds up his hand, as, as David uh, describes, it's, uh, it's, it's very poetic. It's very, there's a slightly sort of heroic, tragic look on the boy's uh, face. It looks well acted. Um, does that, do these production values trouble you at all, Peter? Does it seem like a departure from what you would want or expect from an Elise art video document? Uh, or is it, uh, is it Elise making his first toe step into Hollywood? Probably, although I don't know his motives, <clears throat> in terms of the, of, the, of the work of art, probably closer to the latter. I'm not expert on, on his work, so I'm taking it more or less as a thing in itself. I was rather impressed by it. And a couple of things you brought up or that were brought up so far um, are crucial. One is the sound. You really do notice the sound. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, the helicopter, the sound of the, of the reels going along the street. In terms of the fictiveness about it that David noticed, um, I'm pro probably rather blasé, take that for granted. I mean, one of the things I said to my wife on the way out there was, you know, these kids must travel about eight miles through Kabul and they do it in what, a half an hour or something mm -hmm. like that. So, and I, I, I like the fact that you had the same spatial perception as I did. I thought the film was a V. They went down a hill into the city and then up at, you know, up at the end. The camera angle was rather, not predominantly, but there was a lot of camera angle from a kid's level. You know, you were going along a tracking shot with the kids, and there was a lot of low to the low to the ground stuff, which I thought, you know, reinforced the the the, the child's point of view. Um, only a couple of little, to me, missteps, but I probably sound like a picayune wannabe film critic, and <laughs> that was one the framing gesture because it just, it, there it was, you know, sort of announced. And the other one was the smile on the kid's face at the end of, at the, end of the movie. I mean, it had a real kind of the end curtain closing um, um, uh, thing about it. 
But I have to say, I rather, I, I, oh, and one other thing, one as long as I'm going to be picky, the end credit that tells you the genesis of the film, you know, the Taliban mm -hmm. destroying the sort of thing. Yes. I thought coming at the end like it did, it, there, there was a sort of, I, I, I thought it was a rather weak gotcha, you know, that the Taliban destroyed these films, but oh, those stupid people, they didn't destroy the negatives, they only destroyed plants and we can make more of those. It seemed a little bit trivial for everything that had gone before. The city, the poverty, the trucks, the struggle, the helicopter, the war, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, all told, if I were Lou Luminick, I'd give it three stars. Okay. Um, out of five, uh, I guess? Out of four. Out of, out of four. Ten. I like okay, it. Okay, right. Yeah, well, um, I, I didn't feel that uh, there was that much editorial moralizing about the state of Kabul. I mean, uh, I don't. I mean, Kabul is obviously war-torn over decades now, but uh, but actually, it's a, a, a third-world city, and it's it's uh, it's they are a little dustier than 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 first-world cities. And it looked look. My impression was until it got to the really poor neighbourhoods that looked a bit sad. I thought, well, oh, this looks like a great city. I'd like to get there someday. I mean, it has a it had a it had a, a gravity to it. It had. Um, uh, uh, but but look, uh, I, I I wonder though, then the, the the fictive quality, Paddy. Do you want to come in on this? Did, it, it, it's not. Um, it, it does, of course, relate to the the uh, element of pageantry that's very important to Elise in his earlier work. We think about that um, strange little ritual he did during the uh, the, the time when Pierre uh, Moma had moved to Queens of, of that kind of uh, uh, ritual crossing of of one of the bridges. Um, do you do you feel that um, at least the the fictive or the uh, the actual real time is 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 an important factor in, in what in how you relate to this body of work? Um, I'm. Uh, I mean, I th I feel like that's. Um, I mean, honestly, I'm not sure how to answer that question. I mean, I th I, I think the answer is. Uh, yes, the fictive element is um, is important. It wasn't something that I was focused on when mm -hmm. I um, when I watched it. Um, you know, I was really uh, much more engrossed in the way that um, these kids were just sort of traversing the um, the city. So that's. Yeah. It had more a, what I got from it. It had a lovely motion, didn't it, with them going through the traffic and the and the sort of scary moments with traffic and 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 the the the, the, the reels almost going off the the sides of the the road and it's uh, um, you did sense whatever the whatever the status of uh, um, actuality or, or or artifice in the movie you, you did sense it. It must have been a fairly low production, and these kids are actually there on the edge of those. Uh, uh, steep roads, so. And the more you watch it, the more investment you have in it. Like, unlike, I think, a lot of videos where, like, you sort of watch it and you get the, uh, you get the gist and you're like, okay, I'm done. Like, this, there was, you grew to have a kind of investment in the game. Mm-hmm. hmm, mm -hmm. And what about the way in which this whole film was installed? This, uh, uh, these, these beds, uh, that we can recline on, it felt, the place felt like a, 
uh, an opium-free opium den at some point. With those, uh, uh, what, 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 what did we make of that? Was that, a, was that a, uh, an element of exoticizing? Was that, uh, or was that just a cool way of presenting this movie? Um, um, anybody? Well, I, I'll just say that I, I really enjoyed the movie the first time I saw it, and I did lie down on the, on the floor. Uh, it's interesting that he calls it a film. It's really a video. Uh, you know, it looks to be shot on video and it's being projected on video. Uh, some, uh, maybe we're, there's a gap in the language at the moment to describe like really good videos or something like that, or filmic videos. But uh, anyway, um, I, enjoyed it, I enjoyed it tremendously the first time. And the second time I went back to the show, I enjoyed the paintings more. Oh. Uh, because, and maybe because I was beginning to question the video, or, or maybe just the, the, that experience to sit through the whole thing and watch the whole thing unfold is maybe something you can only have once. And it's deeply satisfying. I mean, and the, the sound, the, 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 whatever the fictions of it, I mean, it's being shot in Kabul, and there is a war going on there, and these boys are going through the city, and you are experiencing a slice, a cross-section, an economic cross-section, cross a political cross-section for the city. So it's a... Uh, you know, it's an experience you go through. It's not something I, you know, I would have gone back to see again unless I was really wanted to, to, I guess, pick it apart a little bit. But one thing I want to mention, oh, by the way, and I do love the paintings. I think they're, I, I really love those paintings a lot. Uh, I think there's some interesting issues of, about imposing color bars onto this one landscape. You know, what is that about? I think it's, it's part of the questioning process that he's going through as far as imposing a fiction on the landscape. Mm -hmm. um, it also refers to seem, some of them seem to refer to Bryce Marden paintings, others definitely refer to Allegro Boetti, of course, who had been in Afghanistan before. And uh, those map, you know, those map pieces have the same kind of color, color uh, striations going through them. But I wanted to mention one thing that, because it's really, it was weird, There's a, there was a, a text piece with a list of what various yes. artists were doing in 1943, some yes. of whom were more or less oblivious of the war, others were victims, some were enthusiasts. And there are three who are, uh, you know, there's there are three who are pro-Nazi. There's uh, um, Boyce, uh, you know, with the Luftwaffe. There's Lenny Reifenstahl. And then the last listing was George Brecht. It says, I think about George Brecht changing his name and, enl and enlisting in the German army. And in the spirit of Casey Stengel, who's outside here, I, I looked it up. George Brecht, of course, is the, you know, progenitor of, one of the progenitors of Fluxus. It's American. He did not enlist in the German army. He enlisted in the American army. In, in, then he went to Germany with the American army, and that's a huge difference. And I'm not sure if, if that's part of Elise's fictive game or just an error of translation. Uh, I, I suspect, and it's my boy, it's not the only issue that I would take with that sort of litany of uh, artist martyrdoms, because uh, he also says, uh, uh, I think of Durin, now let me get the words right here, uh, much courted by the Nazis in Paris. That's a, a historical travesty. He was uh, strong-armed into attending um, uh, a trip to Germany and then dumped. So, I mean, there's no question that that's, this is very, a very glib, um, there are dangerously glib moments in this list. Do you list. think this is the unreliable narrator? Because the one, the one that I noticed was mm -hmm. Mirandi. Right. Mirandi's up there where I can't find him. He's, it says he's surrounded by fascism. It yeah, doesn't he, mention that he's a fascist himself. He's a fascist himself. Yes. He was right. a, a school inspector that went mm -hmm. around, you know, Correct. telling on people. It sounds like this guy, uh, it sounds like at least his, uh, his art history is a little rusty, or, or uh, he's playing a strange game with, with truth and fiction. What do you think, Patty? Um, well, I mean, it sounds like obviously it's because these, uh, these uh, um, like the text is not accurate, but 
Um, I wondered, like, what you guys thought of the uh, wall treatment um, in that, in the show itself, because that, you can see there's mm. a slight difference um, in the presentation on the wall. Like one, um, I thought at first it was two different colors because the uh, um, uh, the paintings are are hung. Um, there's a dado running around the whole gallery. Yeah. So you've got this uh, rather pukey kind of uh, turquoisey blue sort of color that you'd expect in a hospital uh, on the walls. And then it's slightly darker below the dado. And then some the paintings that don't have any color bars on them are below the are dado. Below. Right. Yeah, and like, but I thought at first that this was, um, that there were two different colors, but then I realized that they're not. It's just one is eggshell and another... Oh. Um, is a is a gloss. All right. So, it's actually the same color, just treated uh, with a different right. surface value. One of my students made the very uh, uh, astute witticism that maybe that's the line where the flood had gone up to at the uh, David Swan <laughs> gallery. But um, uh, no, it seemed to me actually uh, just another kind of, uh, and I, I'm really keen to take up David on this. It seems to be another way in which. Uh, Elise has a kind of very um, awkward and pretentious relationship to his own painting. Um, it seems to be sort of saying uh, the painting that doesn't have the smarmy conceptual intrusion of the color bar on it, I'm going to put below the dado line so it's harder to see and sort of in a way being categorized as inferior or something that you'd have to crouch down to look at it. I mean, it seemed to me, I mean, what on earth are the color bars about? What do they mean? He's got these paintings, which are, some of them are on postcards, some of them are just postcard-sized and like. Um, they're, they're charming and rather, rather nice little paintings in a sort of academic sub-coro style. Um, and then you've got the um, color bars stuck on them to remind you that this is an important contemporary artist. Well, um, it's also, I mean, those color bars are test patterns, aren't they? Right. Right. It, Right. So, what's he? What's what's it? What's the what's the big message here that I'm missing? I hesitate to think about it. I've, I I <laughs> I I you know, there's part of me that says, um, I mean, I know that Zwerner can do what Zwerner wants to do mm -hmm. in that rather empirical series of spaces, but part of me thought, you know, you have this video, um, learned that, that it's not a film. It had really, you know, 70 millimeter quality. Um, but they have to have some goods there too. So we have little objet d'art. I thought the paintings rather, and this seemed to be my word of the night, trivialized the presentation of the film, that we had these ancillary things. Mm -hmm. And especially, there, there was one painting, there might have been more, where he had little photographic cutouts that, whose legs dangled off the bottom edge of the, yes. of the thing. The installation, the size of those paintings, the color bars and everything like that, if I had to put a, throw a blanket over it, it would be cute. And it was a little too cute, and there's nothing really cute about the film. Well, except the film, did have a certain cuteness to it. I mean, it had. It wasn't. Uh, it was pretty, but it pretty. wasn't. Well, pretty. We inclusive. might mean different things by cute. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. I mean, uh, I don't mean cute to denigrate it, but I, th I thought there was a certain sen uh, genuine sentimentality about the film. I mean, in a good sense, it doesn't. It's not a bad thing to be sentimental, but it, it was, I think, a little sentimental. But th are the paintings? 
which David holds in high esteem. Paddy, are the paintings uh, popcorn, as Peter's implying, to the to the movie, or uh, do do you see them as being uh, equal or? or to I don't see them as being ancillary or like uh, popcorn. I mean, I I I thought that they were. Um, you know, a good addition. Although I did have the same sort of question, like, because um, immediately you see something in that context and you're like, well, the film's gonna be kind of hard to sell. I mean, it's already on Vimeo. Like, these are, he's gotta sell something. But I, you know, I feel like that's kind of like, if that's my first thought, like I should, like, that's, for me, that seemed like an easy way to think about those things, um, because uh, just as paintings, I, I mean, I, I thought that actually they were a little more like serious than the, than the film, which in a lot of cases I found kind of playful, you know? And these were like these small kind of jewel-like paintings. Um, you know, they weren't all fantastic, um, you know, I think the one that Peter pointed out was not one of my favorites, but I, you know, I thought that they were, um, for someone who I don't really think of as a painter, generally like pretty well considered and even executed. So, I mean, painting has you know long been a part of his practice, and I think that's that's you know I, I didn't I do like them. I don't take them you know, deeply seriously as paintings the way that I would do, you know, a Tom Naskowski painting. But uh, they are carefully and thoughtfully done, and the intrusions, however, you know, um, de rigueur, postmodernistic they are, they're, they're different in each painting. And, you know, one, in one case, the color bars are on a billboard that is sort of set inside the painting. Mm -hmm. In another case, they're just on top of it. In another case, it's just the drawing of the of the colors, I mean, it's just the sort of notations, the verbal notations of the colors. There's a lot of variation. The use of collage is, you know, uh, a little risky, you know, sometimes, because if you were just making uh, little tchotchkes that, that collectors could take home, you wouldn't leave dangling pieces of paper on them. Uh, I took them as being a serious part of his being in, in Kabul, whether he actually did them on site or did them from photographs, or did them in his hotel room at night during the filming. However they came about, I, I took them as being um, not ancillary to the film, but but mm. but but a absolutely essential part of his practice. And what do the bars mean then? I, I'm not going to define them. I, I think they mean different things in different ways. But one, do they help uh, the paintings? Uh, yeah, I think they make them more interesting. They don't. They they stop being sub-coro uh, sub landscape paintings, and start being imaginative and uh, complicated, and bring us back to the to the questions about film and and for example, make you think about well, what was on the film reel that was being reeled? Was it one of the films that the Taliban had burned? And he brought back a copy to have it, you know, traverse the city. Was it the man who would be king about imperialism in Afghanistan from an earlier era? I mean, who knows? Maybe it was the red balloon. It, you know, it started to make me think about the relationship of what it means to impose these meanings on this landscape, which right. is what the film is about. That's that's a, that's well put. And and then it makes one feel that there's maybe a pun on real and uh, R E A L and the real right. unreal. 
title of the film. And what's the, what's that little epigram about cinema? cinema everything oh, else? Oh yes, yes. Everything else is uh, cinema. Is he starts uh, see, uh, cinema is uh, real, and everything else is imaginary. Which sounds right. actually, it almost could be a, a you know a, 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 a in something that you'd seen at DreamWorks. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, something you might see. That in, one, uh, that one really did kind of annoy me. I have to in say. In a Fellini studio. Or I kept, I hoping that I, if I thought about it, it, would make you know, it would it would come mm. to me, but it hasn't. Right, right. Well, um, so a, a Belgian artist visiting Afghanistan, and now we think about a Chinese artist from China and who's in China, uh, but is also holding up contemporary art as uh, in some uh, some instances in his work literally a, a mirror to, uh, to to his society and also to his uh, to, to his life within that society uh, so song dong uh, we have a two-part show um, in one part we have uh, some new works um, including text works the ones that were seen in uh, documenta uh, and also a sort of stop animation um, uh, uh, video of uh, shots of the, the mound that was uh, erected in outside the orangery as part of the uh, documenta and uh, and uh, three of his uh, uh, no two of his uh, three mountains uh, series of sculptures um, and then in the second venue um, we have uh, a rather a condensed but rather comprehensive actually and uh, uh, I, I thought very neat um, retrospective overview of Song Dong's work since 1994, providing perhaps a context uh, within which to, to look at and think about the, the newer work. And it's the, the review panel policy generally to, to try to focus on a unified new body of work. So panelists, if we could, primarily focus, uh, but feel free to reference uh, the earlier work, but primarily focus on, on the newest work. So. Um, David, Song Dong, do you, do you feel uh, do you feel a particular mood in his work? Um, well, it is you know it, it is a retrospectivey kind of thing. So there's a lot of different kinds of work. The, the, I think that uh, there's and there's a variety of moods from from being um, very thoughtfully uh, you know sort of. A sort of thoughtful pathos to almost a juvenile glee and, and destruction. You know, for example, the, the, the four-channel video piece in which he's recreated sort of sung landscapes in the four food groups mm -hmm. and then destroys them. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty juvenile. Uh, yes, it gets more interesting when you when you think of them as being uh, comments on the destruction of the ancient Chinese landscape by dams and development uh, and by greed because there's a sense of you know just your grotesque greed and all of this beautiful food being destroyed but the way that he you know builds those landscapes isn't really as particularly engaging so that you don't feel the loss when you, when they're destroyed and that's in contrast to works that are not in the show that, that you know I did see waste not which was at uh, the MoMA atrium which is a very Poetic and personal recreation, uh, or actually not recreation, but kind of an accumulation piece of all the stuff that his mother had collected over the years, who had suffered the you know humiliations and the repressions of the Cultural Revolution. So that you know that piece is very strong. It has political uh, overtones without being 
you know, directly confrontational. Uh, but, and, and all of the work you can interpret with some political overtones and some personal meanings. But <clears throat> I didn't find anything in the show that, that was as compelling as Waste Not and, uh, uh, in terms of the scale of the ambition or the sense of personal investment in the work. Uh, and there's other, you know, and since I've begun, you know, trying to, to open the question of the political meanings of this work, of course, I've never been to China, uh, and it's very hard for me to assess the meaning of, for example, that diptych in which he's uh, breathing, I think it's called breathing, where he's uh, breathing in weather like this on Tiananmen Square and making a frozen little patch and then doing the same action on a frozen lake and, and nothing happens as I think the, the caption says. Uh, it's hard for me to assess the political meaning of you know, that, but I, I'm deeply suspicious about the, sort of the branding of that image because when you think about how many, how many times have we seen the, the Tiananmen Square image uh, in, in our being exposed to this, you know, this international artist who's achieved acclaim at Documenta and the Biennale, now coming to New York really uh, for the, having his first solo show here, being represented by a galley, which has made a heavy investment in Beijing. Uh, and how many times have we seen the second image of him breathing on the frozen lake? That's, you know, so, so I'm suspicious, not of his work per se, but of the sort of the marketing of it and Americans' expectations about the politicalness of Chinese art. And, you know, we, uh, you know, we want all the artists to be confrontational against the government, but the reality is that, uh, you know, the government, is, is, the, is the billionaire oligarchs who's collect, who are collecting new Chinese art. I'll, so I'll stop there. Could we talk a little bit, I mean, well, can I talk a little bit? <laughs> yes, let's focus uh, on, yeah. I will try to be brief. Um, because the interesting thing to me is, is, when I came out of that show, is the general issue of contemporary Chinese political commentary in art. And I'm in this sort of in-between thing. David says he's never been to China. I've been, I've been to Shanghai for a week and Beijing for a week, both of them for sort of official art business. So I feel like somebody who's, who's from a foreign country who's visited New York and says, I've been to America. No, you haven't. You've been to New York. It's different, you know, a week in a, in a bubble with a bunch of other art people being driven around in a bus and going, you know, it's not in China, so I'm in this kind of middle ground. But the second time I went, the last time, it was a couple of years ago, and it was a conference on art criticism, okay? And there were some four Euros and four Americans there, and other were Chinese, and we had a big square table, and it was all this sort of stuff. And it was simultaneous translation. First thing you noticed was, somebody pointed this out to me, when a couple of the Chinese people, the Chinese artists, they had some young Chinese artists, um, were speaking, there were gaps where the sound went off in the simultaneous translation that they didn't buy, you know, and you wondered, was this just, they're falling behind, or is this contentious stuff? Then there was a little bit of heated thing got going about, oh, I forget what the issue was, but it was about censorship and, Yes, there is, no, there's not, et cetera, et cetera. So we adjourned, and the next day at the head table, there was this guy who could have been anywhere from 35 to 55 in a short sleeve white shirt with no tie with a pocket saver in there, and he was right to the 
right of the person heading the conference, and I forget what his name was. He was Mr. So-and-so, and he was from the party's cultural office. And the old American phrase, you know, kick ass and take names, I thought, ooh, this is the reverse. We're going to take some names here. So anyway, I'm going on too long, but I got a little sense of this sort of frisson of what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And in seeing the Song Dong exhibition, particularly the, the part, the retrospective part, mm-hmm. with, the, with the things in it, it was, you know, how much do you get close to actually pushing a hot button and, and, mm-hmm. and putting yourself in kind of Ai Weiwei danger, you know, of, of, of uh, you know, being, being come down upon. Mm-hmm. And and how close can you get? And there was I always get this feeling, and I'll end with this. I always get this feeling, and I don't blame it on the artist. There's a slight tiptoeing around things that you have to do. And I know there are certain rules about living politicians and what you can do with the image of Mao, et cetera, et cetera. But I came out of there and I thought, I long for Sue Ko. You know, <laughs> right. I want right. some really confrontational, you know, here it is. Up, well, and one last thing. Uh, Peter, maybe. Uh, wait, wait. So up yours is, is, David mentioned the thing about Tiananmen Square, you know, the Ai Weiwei mm-hmm. things of him giving the middle yes. finger to various yeah. things. Okay. Well, but Ai Weiwei gives the middle finger to the Eiffel Tower and the White House yeah, as yeah. well. And maybe, uh, uh, you know, Song Dong or anybody who wants a career as an artist would look at America and say, well, you know, Bruce Nauman seems to have a bigger career than Sue Ko, so maybe actually being uh, 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 signing up to a radical um, uh, agitprop art uh, isn't actually going to get you as far as exploring um, more interesting and poetic kind of um, uh, ways of, of, of looking at life. I mean, uh, I'm not necessarily saying that I prefer Bruce Nauman to Sukkot, but um, I, I think we have to have the same value systems, wh- whatever country we're applying them to. And to, to sort of take Ai Weiwei, who's this kind of celebrity, primarily because of his sort of unassailable uh, political nobility, um, a, 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 as being, okay, this is the yardstick for, this is what Chinese art should be doing, and this is what this is, the yardstick is, do you get prison time? If you don't get prison time, you, you're not a serious artist. It's a bit like saying, if you're not at the, if you're not at the David Werner Gallery or, or Pace Gallery, you're not a serious artist. I mean, that's, it's, uh, it's a weird kind of um, uh, criterion for quality. I really think, uh, with respect to David and Peters, thank you for your contributions, neither of which really focused on the show. Let's, Paddy, tell me what you thought of the show. Um, Well, you know, it's funny. I was going to, I guess, talk a little bit about um, some of the poetry that was in the um, first gallery because it did seem to relate very much to um, some of the words that uh, David and Peter were talking about, specifically Peter, who was um, talking about, uh, you know, how much can you do? And, of course, these poems I have, like, I took a few shots when I was there like non-action doesn't hurt and action doesn't waste and action is a waste yet a must and then doing nothing means nothing gets done doing something may mean nothing meaningless things still need doing song tongue so those poems I did not care for that much I mean they didn't they don't speak to me in any particular way but 
you'll notice when you go in there that each one had like a um, an official stamp that they were translated, and this was like exactly what they meant. And somehow I thought that that was um, perhaps the the more you know one of the more interesting things about those um, yeah those um, poems. May I, may I may I sort of sure, not, sure. not to correct you, but basically to correct you, sorry. I mean, no, no, basically, uh, basically, it's a conceptual art exercise. He, yep. he wrote something in Chinese. You can see that in Chinese okay. in the yellow letters on the other side of the room, uh, of the place. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's called Doing Nothing Book. Okay, so he writes something in uh, Chinese. And uh, then underneath it, very helpfully, uh, Pace gives us a translation by none other than Philip Tanari, founder, editor of Leap Magazine, very uh, important figure in the Chinese art world. Uh, and he's, uh, he's American, but he's fluent in Chinese, and he offers a translation. Uh, that which goes undone goes undone in vain. That which is done is done still in vain. That done in vain must still be done. And that's uh, Philip Tanari's uh, translation of Song Dong's Chinese poem. But then the whole point is that... Uh, oh, that each one that, of these uh, is... He then a... sent it to a, a few other friends including Enoch Chong and uh, Jamie Tsu, and then he stopped some people on the street. And there's a Gmail and then he, um, But then address. he sent it to five or six different translation agencies in Beijing, and there, that, there, that ties in with Peter's experience okay, in the go. conference room, because uh, it, it's really a sort of anti-advertisement for, for instance, the Beijing Global Bowen <laughs> Translation Company <laughs> Limited, and don't go anywhere near uh, uh, this other one, because they come up with gibberish. Uh, doing is better than ignoring. To do is to waste. To do even, there is no payment. Uh, or or uh, not to do is to waste. To do is to waste. Even it is waste, we have to do, etc. So you realize, well, lost in translation, found in translation, but obviously the literal translations come out as gibberish and the clever English uh, American editors translating can, it well can I, comes out nicely, but it may be that the gibberish is closer to the original than the yeah. nice. Yeah, I mean, can I jump in here? Yeah. yeah. And so, because I do want to get, take it back to the actual works in the show. And, and I, yeah, and well, I found this is a work in the show. Indeed, so I, I found that this, 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 uh, this uh, the phrase, I mean, I'm not gonna read it again because it is gibberish, uh, was very, I found it was typical of over, uh, gilding the lily, you know, mm. uh, then that happened in several of the other of the other works, which I'll get to in a second. But the the, the one translation I did like was "vain, vain, all in vain," mm -hmm. and I also want to just, for what it's worth, point out that Elise's uh, subtitle for his uh, Paradox of Praxis, Praxis, the one where he pushes the ice block, is the subtitle of that piece is "Sometimes Doing Something Leads to Nothing," which is probably the best translation of all. Anyway, so so in the, what about the stones piece, the piece where he takes a stone and he throws yeah. it and throws it until he can't find it anymore. Beautiful, poetic, pure uh, conceptual art piece. Except that, then he makes another stone and he and he marks it all down, and he makes a diagram and and a drawing of of the action. And then we have all these stones. So, the whole beauty of throwing away the stone and losing the stone gets tied to this to these you know this other thing. I think those the stones that we do see are very beautiful actually, and and they're probably the most beautiful beautiful physical the, objects. But I think that the, the sum of the parts is less. I mean, the parts is what is it? How do you say that? <laughs> the sum is less than the parts, and uh, of that piece, and I, and I and I think that that also the the the, the towers the, the, that's made that, that are made out of 
something, Three Mountains, the big mountain piece. Yes. Those are actually really nice sculptures, and I like the ideas in them. I like seeing the little, uh, the, the drain as a kind of a navel, and, the, and this key switch as another navel. I found, I found, I related to those as sculptures, and I thought about where they came from, where the materials came from, what, what it all meant, and I thought it was an effective piece. But then there's all these other layers. When you start reading about it, they refer to Sung Landscape, a, a particular painting named Mao Wan. They refer to these, uh, uh, a Maoist propaganda about the three mountains of something or other. You know, and then it just too many layers and I thought that was the case for a lot of the work in the show. But surely, I mean, that's that in a way is like in a nutshell the whole uh, sort of gringo round eye view of Chinese art. We go in and we look at these things and they're just the calligraphy which we can't read yes. is beautiful and we love it and the landscapes are exquisite and we say, yes, we love this piece and someone comes along and says, yes, well, I'm sure you do but don't you realise this is a copy of so-and-so who was an emulating so-and-so who in fact did this in the uh, Tang Dynasty, and, and then well, you, begin, you begin to love it less. And then someone says, and do you realize that you have, there's only one way that leaves can be drawn, it has to be done in this direction and that direction, and the master had to study for 30 years to get the leaves all in the right direction, and then you say, oh, I don't like this anymore, but you did like it, so why don't you just go back to liking it? This, but that's true of any art, every art. All, look at medieval art, look at Renaissance art. It's multi-layered. Some windbag professor can bore you silly telling you what it means and doesn't mean, or you can say, shut up, please, I'm looking at this Tintoretto and I just want to look at this painting. So again, we have to have the same yardstick whether we're looking at east or west. Let's say a, a, a little something then about the appropriateness of the setting, namely, if you're going to have an artist who is as complex and poetic mm -hmm. and substantive and major and who has a track record of both where he exhibits and what they're about and the layering of the work, mm -hmm. even two venues of Pace Gallery are probably not um, spatially and What's the word I want? You know, perceptually appropriate yeah, uh -huh. to the thing. The, the, the retrospective part of the exhibition felt, um, as a retrospective, it felt too thin, mm -hmm. that there weren't enough pieces. Pieces had to stand for too much. There, there should have been more, but there wasn't any space for it. But even in the space they had, you had to have little alcoves, and you had to go around the corner. In other words, this should have... if, if this kind of treatment of, 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 of this sort of artist should probably be in a not-for-profit institution and given the whole scholarly nine yards and everything like that. You can't kind of, and I'm probably being too hard on pace, you can't half-ass it like this. Um, one last footnote, though, I do agree with David about the, about the sculptures. I thought the sculptures were good. And it was in such that I walked around it in probably a very westernized, formalist way, deciding that I liked the ones that weren't out of kitchen and bathroom tiles better. Right. Somehow the scale and the simplicity and et cetera, et cetera, and the way they built up to the, to the chairs on the top. They were just uh, uh, good things to look at and intriguing. Yes. Did you I mean, I think if we like hold Gagosian to the standards of like museum shows, and I mean, I don't know how many of you guys have seen the House Aaron Worth show um, with uh, Dieter Rode. Dieter Rode, mm -hmm. like, which um, is by no means complete either, but then at the same time did not feel particularly thin to me. I do think that we can like 
look at at pace and say like look you can do a better job with this they have two locations you know Mm. um i'm surprised that pace is getting knocked for that though i mean it's an anthology it's not a retrospective but it's an anthology of some works from the past uh, of song dong that will help you i think look at the new work which is for sale i mean it's all for sale but i mean it's a it's a it's a it seemed to be a pretty respectable introduction to this artist I guess um, I just feel like yeah. the standards have changed, though, a little bit. Like, yes. when I went to the Hauser & Wirth preview, uh, press preview, they were like, 50% of this work is not for sale. And I think, like, you hear that a lot these days. Like, you know, the Gagosian Monet show, mm. you knew one work was for sale. The Picasso you knew one work was for sale, yes. Right. So... You didn't necessarily know that some of the works have been sold in the past, and this is flattering the person who's bought it in the past and reminding him where to come when he wants to sell it in the future. It's a little bit more subtle sometimes, I think, the economics of the art market. But um, can I uh, take issue with David uh, about uh, the, the Stones piece? This is a, this is a, this is, he's described this sort of the fluxus-like nature of this project. He takes a rock, he throws it, he throws it again, he throws it again until he can't find it again at all. And then he takes another rock and he paints on it uh, that whole process, and David feels that spoils the the poetry of it. Although, or it spells, spoils the again the sort of fluxus integrity of it, but um, uh, and gives us this thing which he admits is rather nice to look at. Um, but I, it seems to me that the same conundrum is there with Robert Smithson. I mean, you know, uh, not many of us get to Spiral Jetty. Most of us know Spiral Jetty from photographs of it, and so we have this. Irony that it's it's earth art, it's land art, it's it's going beyond the uh, bourgeois stuffy confines of a gallery or uh, a saleable object, um, but actually, really, it's a photograph. So, um, you know, it seems to me actually also that the 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 little stones, the fact that they're copies of something the original of which is lost, seems to me very indicative of. It seems to actually trigger a whole set of associations with. Uh, Chinese culture and history because um, the Chinese, China is China because of the Chinese language, but the Chinese language is written, not spoken. I mean, there's so many spoken languages. There's the written language, and it's, and it's put on these stelae. The stelae are then studied for centuries and centuries to get uh, and emulated. So it's, it's, he's sort of encapsulating within his own little experience the whole Chinese experience, right? Well, the, you know, the, those, those, those stones do feel like ancient petroglyphs. I mean, they have that quality, and they do refer to this 5,000-year whatever history of civilization in this place, and civilizations, I should say. <clears throat> so, and, and I found them powerful, but uh, Smithson, you know, yes, that, there's always this issue with documenting ephemeral works. I mean, Spiral Jetty isn't ephemeral in, that, in the same way. I think that the ephemerality, the, lo- the loss of the stone is the whole point of the throwing the stone. So in that particular instance, it just feels like gilding the lily. Uh, I wish they were two separate pieces somehow. Uh, maybe you could look at them as two separate pieces. But I, I think that that's a problem that goes through the whole show, and including the, the diptych breathing. Why do we need the second thing on the lake? Why uh, do we need... Um... Well, I think the reason we get the second piece on the lake is because in Tiananmen Square, the, f- the frozen breath remained, and at the... Uh, uh, the, lot, the, the other venue, which is a kind of feels more is, is doesn't have the weight of oppression of of, of bureaucracy, um, it was able to huh. 
the, the opposite happened. I think there was supposed to be a sort of political message there. Oh, Can I, uh, I'm waiting um, to be enlightened. <clears throat> yes. Get in on David's side. That David. That David. David. Brody. Mr. Brody. Thank you, sir. Um, there's a, I think there's, that, that he has a real point. I mean, the absence of the stone that's thrown until it's lost, I don't know how you manifest that in a gallery. I'm not that kind of artist. But it seems to me when it's vanished and it's really gone, there is something wonderfully, and this word has been thrown around a lot this evening, poetic about it. But there's a difference between the Smithson thing and the stone thing. With the Smithson thing and earthwork things, when the County Museum in LA did its land art show, you've got something that's so hugely material that you can't bring it into the gallery, so you bring little mementos of it. You sort of dematerialize it. This is something that is, and I hardly ever use this word, spiritual, about throwing that thing. And what they do is they materialize it in the gallery. And not only that, there is something, and I'll go back to the Western perception, which I can't help, there's something very heavy and unrelenting about that row of stones and the way that it's hung on the wall. So one is materially up from something that should be nothing, and the other, the Smithson thing, is scaling something down so you can make it convenient for museum goers. Right, right, yeah. Um, Paddy, you have any feelings on that piece, uh, or any any other comments on on Songdong? Um, I don't think so, actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, audience, uh, pretty heated debate there on 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 Songdong, and uh, and uh, some some heat on uh, Elise as well. Um, there's, a, there's a there's a roving mic going around. Please wait for the mic. Wait for the mic, so that we can both hear you and record you. Uh, but. The fact that you're going to be heard and recorded should not inhibit you. Please go ahead and uh, say, uh, say what you vent uh, your feelings. So um, comments are just are probably more welcome than questions, because questions come back and have to be answered, whereas comments are just adding new voices to the mix. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, just take it as it comes. You can talk about Elise or Songdong, because um, actually perhaps they'll um, relate to each other anyway. Yes. Um, is some, okay. Uh, so I thought it was interesting in the end that you contrasted these two pieces, uh, I mean these two artists, because um, one thing about Elise that David just started to get to at the end was this idea of the, this film as a representation that is not ever dealt with. And the, I think that that brings in this idea of culture that, is, that exists as a representation versus the way the kids treat the culture, which is just as a mechanism for play. And I think that that makes it important because also <clears throat> there was a lot of talk about film versus video. Um, this film is a piece of... Uh, archaic culture. I mean, we don't really use film anymore. Everything is digitized. Um, and I think really digital versus, uh, versus filmic uh, versus video, I think that digital makes much more sense because the cameras are kind of the same in a way. Um, the structure of the cameras are the same. It's just 
you know, a digital image versus uh, a chemical, you know, transformation. But anyway, uh, the idea that there was this destruction uh, reenacted because it wasn't understood, and yet it, it was, the, the children didn't understand what they were playing with. And there was a whole level of representation that was kind of missing from that thing. And I, I think that this is why it's interesting to contrast the two artists, because um, in the Chinese artists, there's a whole layer of representation that, you know, we either can't deal with or is unpleasant to deal with. It was interesting that you guys got into an idea of this whole formalist thing as like, well, you know, if we can't deal with it formally, then it's irritating. <laughs> and, um, and I think that there is a, somehow a, a contrast between those two things. Right, thank you. Yeah. Um, other comments? Other, other, yes. Well, um, I don't really have a clue why they put those mattresses in Zwerner, but I've got to tell you, I loved it because I've been asked for ever since uh, video moved into the art world to stand on concrete floors for 30 minutes and watch these things. And I loved lying down on that mattress. And I, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Maybe the mattresses are there so we can be comfortable to watch the film. Maybe it's just that. And if that's all it is, I think that's fantastic. I loved it. I had the impression that in the Alice show that the stripes related to um, when the at least in Brazil where I grew up where the when the programming and the TV finished they would put stripes of exactly those colors at the end so Okay. Anybody want to challenge? Uh, anybody want to take up this? Some of the challenges of the the debate about the, the Chinese artists about Song Dong about whether um, uh, it's uh, he's not hitting the right buttons hard enough, uh, whether he's uh, uh, about the the. All right. Okay. Look. Let's uh, let's move on to uh, the PowerPoint for our next couple of shows, um, which are Diana Cooper at Postmasters, and da and David Shrigley at. Uh, Anton Kern. <clears throat> Diana Cooper, a painter who took up sculpture and uh, who's now embraced the planographic in photographic form. Um, quite a departure in many ways, formally, um, to those of us who've been following her work. Um, whether you've followed her work or not in the past, uh, Paddy, how, how do you respond to the integration of um, uh, the flat and the three-dimensional in this show? Um, well, I guess I should first begin by saying I have not been following her work, so um, that this is a departure for her. An innocent eye. Um, it's not a, like I haven't seen the other stuff. Um, I... Uh, um, I thought I really liked this show and I liked it for um, sort of the elements of um, I guess the thematic elements of watching and um, uh, surveillance that were 
um, part of the show. I know it took about three weeks to make, and a lot of the uh, photographs that are in the show are, I guess I don't really see the work as being um, in a lot of ways that flat because it's specifically responding to the space. So she might like, she'll take a photograph of the skylight and then place it like right below the skylight. And there is like a beautiful kind of continuity between the, the shape and form um, because that would happen like right at a corner space and it happens in both the front room and in the back room. Um, and I guess uh, um, I, um, the elements of uh, surveillance that were um, I think maybe a little bit uh, less prevalent in certain spots. Like one of the things you'll notice, I mean, I guess it's not specifically to do with surveillance in this instance, but if you look up on the, like right over the, the corner of the doorway, there's several vents. And that gives you kind of a clue as to what she's doing because you'll notice that um, some things uh, like uh, uh, the vents, there's really only one original vent, but there's like about four or five um, on the wall. And then I think it's in the second room. You'll see on the floor, there's, um, I'm not sure what the word is for this, but basically they have this like little metal cover that goes over top of um, electrical outlets. So there's one there, but there's like a quadrant of four. So there's a lot of sort of constructed space. Um, and my favorite part though is like on the way in, um, they have like one video camera. Um, and it's like, a, you can see the, the, um, the hole for it looks like this. But like she's taken a photograph of that and then um, duplicated it all around on the inside um, of the doorway so you wouldn't, you wouldn't even notice that this like surveillance system has been duplicated in any way unless you were really looking. Um, but it creates like, it's just a beautiful pattern. And like throughout, there's a lot of pictures of like audience uh, or like empty chairs and auditoriums and things like that. So the entire time you're reminded of like, you know, looking and being watched. Great. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad the review panel has introduced uh, an artist who you clearly are embracing. Um, uh, as, as, no, I mean, it's a lovely evocation. I think uh, that you, you, the, the, uh, looking hard, creating patterns, that's, uh, that's, that's to me, uh, if I had to, had to find four words for Dinah Cooper, those may be the words. Um, uh, David, do you, do you, do you, it seemed to me also that Paddy was absolutely right on the money when in saying that the the flat uh, the, the photographic is actually very spatial very dimensional i mean it's uh, it seemed that you know those blue chairs really suck the eye right in it seems that um, uh, to me that the uh, a very interesting kind of relationship between flat and deep um yeah i mean this is for me this is a big departure from her work uh, so the kinds of plays with space she's doing in the show are quite different from what she's done before. I'm a big fan of the work that I started seeing uh, in the 90s, mid-90s, of uh, that were really, she really found a way to draw in space. She, uh, she made these constructions out of Sharpie, uh, <coughs> filters, uh, foam core, that just 
accumulated, there's kind of, it's kind of like accumulation clusterfuck coming off the wall, reaching into the space, growing, girders hanging off, tunnels going in. It was, it was overwhelming. And she really, uh, you know, her hand, when she, when she brings her hand into play is, is, is stunning, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. She's taken her hand out of this show for the most part. Uh, and so it's really, you know, it's really different for me to get used to it. I, I can't say that I'm as in love with this work as I have been with her work in the past. Do, just to interrupt a yep. little, she was the one that did like the pipe cleaner um, type stuff in Postmasters, say, yeah. circa 2001. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, I, I thought... I thought that work was a little fussy. Hmm. Like, I actually enjoy this work a little bit more, especially because hmm. in my mind, she was like the pipe cleaner artist. Okay. <laughs> well, that's one of many kinds of things that she used. And actually, the, the, the range of work is quite astonishing. And, but, and parenthetically, a number of these earlier works were destroyed in the hurricane and storage. So it, it, the, as ephemeral as they looked, it turned out to be quite, in fact, ephemeral. So the new, um, um, sadly, uh, then this show, uh, you know, in, by introducing photography and, and, and particularly uh, photography of the very architecture in which the piece mm -hmm. is being, uh, the pieces are being constructed, does take the work back to the sort of the site, specific, site specificity of some of that earlier work, but in a very different way. Um, I'm not sure I'm convinced by the sense, you know, by uh, ideas of surveillance, ideas of sort of the tying the gallery into global commerce, which you get here, you have besides you know pictures of the of the you know re, cloning of the space of the gallery in various ways, and some of them really inventive and fantastic. Uh, you also have images of uh, you know uh, global waste stream, bales of recycling, uh, you know the kinds of nettings and webbings that you use for for shipping things from country to country on shipping uh, on you know large container ships. Uh, you know, so it, it does seem like a very conscious tying in of uh, how a gallery, you know, a gallery economy to the larger global economy, but I'm not so convinced by that. I think there's a, a very strong tradition that goes back to the mid-60s, people like Michael Asher doing, you know, taking gallery walls down that, that I don't think, you know, this show really works for me in that terms, but on those terms, but uh, where it does work in terms of calling attention to the architecture of the gallery is, is to think about this particular space, this particular gallery, Postmasters, which moved to that space in 1998 and in the first wave of Chelsea and helped pioneer this kind of very different non-Soho look of clean architecture, aluminum and glass, concrete floors, uh, and these you know, projecting walls that, that um, Patty described as where, where uh, Diana put these, these little camera clones on yeah. and so it, but but in doing that you start to actually pay attention to how the bloom is off the rose because you see the cracks in the skylight you see the um you see the bent blades on the vents you see that the the security monitor which is reproduced all over the place it's this you know 1975 sylvania monitor it's mm. it's actually the monitor that they use for security in the, in the back in the in the gallery office uh but it's it was must have already been old in 1998 so Okay. That makes it, just to finish, just, just to, because I want to say that, that the thing that I like about it is that it shows how it distinguishes the Postmasters, which was not a, a sleek corporate gallery. It's a, it's a mom and pop shop. It's a very gallery loyal, I mean, artist loyal gallery that is interested in sort of the dystopian use of technology. So I, I like that aspect of the show very much. 
Right. Okay, that gives a, that gives a, a historic angle on it. Thank you. Peter. Patty's sort of on the upside, and David seems, I wouldn't say in the middle, but you had a, a good and a bad part. Um, I suppose, regrettably true to form, I'm a bit of a negativist on this show. Um, all those things that were said were true, I, so I will just be general. One is that I'm a little bit, not I'm a little bit, I'm quite suspicious of associations as credit to the artist. I mean, every, we, we, we make associations with everything that we see, and I sometimes get the idea that we in the audience are doing the heavy lifting. Um, the second thing is, is that it's this kind of in-between work that I, I admit that I have difficulty with, which is that it's not encompassing installation, uh, but it's, it's, it's more than individual works of art that are contained even implicitly with some kind, within some kind of rectangle grid on the wall. And I, I, a couple of them, um, you know, there could have been more of them, there could have been less of it. I couldn't figure out where the necessary boundaries were and how much you put in and how much you don't. And the one, there was one piece, the one with the, with the swimming pool and the artificial grass and that sort of thing came in that was very rectilinear and contained, but that was to me one of the less successful pieces. It was, it was sort of inert. Um, I have a friend an artist friend out in LA, another grump like me, who said about another artist out there who does similar work, meaning the, the work that's done on the wall and goes out and so forth, and he said the trouble with it for him was there are no conclusions to be drawn. And one of the things that got me about this was, was, was it left it at that kind of ambiguous point, you know, that, that, that neither fish nor fowl. Um, for instance, the one part about the use of photography, I was very sucked in and taken in by the blue seating at yes. Monticello Racetrack. Yeah. But I thought, you know, there's a perfectly good Andreas Gursky photograph and it's got all these bells and whistles added to it and it makes a configuration, you know, up there. But it didn't particularly, you know, add anything to it. Um, the two, the witty thing, which was the surveillance, you know, the photograph of the surveillance thing yes. um, um, on the way out was, uh, what I want to say, pleasing, pleasingly clever. On the other hand, the last thing I say is, is that this artist suffered gravely in the aftermath of, of, of the hurricane. This show was, was I take it a kind of on-site, you know, made show, and so it it had certain restrictions to it, um, and and I, I you know it's obviously terrible that Miss Cooper's work was so devastated by the after you know by the effects of the storm. So I don't want yes. to get too um, 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 about it. It just I don't know. It just sort of sat there for all its busyness and cacophony and colorfulness and mix of transparencies and opacities and the real and the photograph, it surprisingly inert to me. All right, okay. 
Yeah. Um, that's, I think, uh, you know, it would be extra damage from the hurricane to be denied um, good, honest criticism of whatever you've done next. So I think, um, on, on her behalf, thank you very much for your <laughs> candor. No, I think that's, uh, uh, that's I, I, I shared the view, by the way, that, you know, at some points I felt this is an installation and, and there are instances where it's definitely, um, there, there's that definite play with the space. And other times I thought, yeah, it's, it, this, is, this is another piece. This is another piece, and this piece could be placed anywhere. It's not, um, it's, it's just hanging in the gallery. But I, I didn't, that didn't actually offend me. I mean, I, as soon as I adjusted to that, I realized, okay, yeah, some, some art is installation and some art is installed. And those are um, uh, legitimate um, category distinctions. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't no, I don't think though that I don't think an exhibition needs to say this is, entire exhibition is going to be an installation or this exhibition is of all detachable, uh, non-site specific pieces. I think you know there's a there's a, a healthy, happy swim uh, from from well, one to the next. I think you know. I think that her her, her great strength as an artist is that she's. She do, she, she's a doodler. Yeah. She takes materials and she plays with them and, she, and things happen. She thinks about them, but also she plays with them purely in visual, visual terms. I thought, for example, the, the piece Turf, which is on the right, going down the right-hand wall as you're going, uh, the second piece, was, was by far the most visually compelling and partly because the photography in that piece works as pure texture. Mm -hmm. And then you can read it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, there are images of grass and fake grass and there's actual fake grass. Uh, so, so the photography works on several different levels. I didn't find the, the seating working for me that way in most of the pieces, for example. Um, I found them as a reference to art as entertainment or something like that. Uh, and also, just to finish up with turf, the, the, the other really smart thing that it does that I don't think any of the other pieces do is, is it uses the white of the wall, mm -hmm. integrates the white of the wall into the aesthetics of the piece, and it's very powerful. She also plays with this uh, uh, laminate, this very highly colored laminate, and cuts out you know, confident organic shapes out of it that really arrest the eye. And a lot of the other pieces just felt like you know, she hadn't come to terms with the use of the, her new materials yet. She yeah. hadn't taken ownership of them. But that piece you know, shows that she's certainly capable of doing it. And you know. It felt transitional to me. What I've really liked about her work in the past was the um, obsessive, compulsive, uh, color categorization that she'd almost be like going out to h find anything that could be the right vermilion to put into this piece and and uh, some of it would have baggage from its uh, prior life and some of it would simply be raw material and then it would give you this strange sensation of having to work out for yourself really whether the whether the components um, have the the residual element or whether they are they're raw which is you know one of the, you know, I think, to my to my mind, one of the crucial ongoing problems of any artist working in in any form of uh, collage. Um, here, yeah, it seemed pretty a very noisy show, and um, and one which is um, sort of, at the one hand, getting bigger, and on the other hand, getting flatter by going out into the world and finding um, or making uh, photographic images to then be brought back and to work in a kind of sculptural way. Um, so I, I do feel, to my mind, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a transitional um, uh, show, but it seems to be, have a very big energy and um, 
kind of encouraging. I, I find myself asking myself a question and saying, okay, some of these seem to have an aesthetic that's kind of just uh, on the same page as Jessica Stockholder. Some of them have a, an aesthetic that's on the same page of Sarah Z. Um, which, which artist is she really closer to? I didn't answer the question oh, for myself can yet. I, can I jump in for a second? You can. I, I think she, you know, her work from the 90s and you know, helped pave the way for artists like uh, for, for artists like Sarah Z or Phoebe Washburn, who has a in piece out in the hallway. Uh, I think there are a number of, of artists who were who were pioneering that sense of accumulation and using stock materials in interesting ways. Um, but she's she's probably uh, you know I, I think that that is an issue. Like it's not you know Sarah uh, Sarah Z, uh, Jessica Stockholder, Sarah Oppenheimer, who's done these uh, very clean architectural installations, uh, have really cornered the market in a certain sort of the, the sort of the cleanliness, the, cl the clean use of these vividly colored Home Depot materials. And, you know, uh, so this show kind of has to, you know, it doesn't, like if you looked up at the security monitors in that quadrant uh, where the cro there's a kind of a crossing and these uh, monitors are at an angle, they're, they're kind of warping and the paper's delaminating. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't quite work as sculpture. It doesn't, it's not, it's not clean enough to bring off that, you know, security monitor vibe. Uh, but it's not, uh, it's not, uh, the hand isn't in it enough to take it to someplace else yet. Mm. So I feel like it is a little bit in between. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I see that. I, um, I mean, I think I came out, um, pretty much in favor of this show for which a position I think um, I pretty much maintain although I do think like um, for example the auditorium pieces like um, that were pointed out like those the seating pieces I think those are among the amongst the weaker work they sort of to me they work as a whole within the exhibition to move forward a theme but individually are you know less compelling um, I do think that this particular installation benefits um, from multiple viewings. And I say that because um, when I went, I went at different times of day um, to Postmasters. And there's one moment, um, there's, if, the, if the light is the right kind of light then the, um, that's shining through the, the skylight, then it looks exactly the same as a photograph. And that's kind of a beautiful moment. And then to go back and see that it's like not at all the same color, there's a certain kind of uncanniness there that happens that um, from a repeated viewing that I think um, benefits the show. Uh, and I, I guess I would say that I would agree with you that the um, uh, the monitor as it was constructed um, uh, wasn't perfect in that um, I like the I like the history that you brought out and the um, from postmasters and that that maybe recalls that and then that's a layer that um, you know can be added to the show that uh, you know that I think um, you know brings brings a community element into it that's I think really nice fantastic Thank you. Well, we will have till February the 9th to go and see Diana Cooper at Postmasters Gallery. So our final show, David Shrigley, seemed very true to form of the Anton Kern Gallery with its kind of uh, 
sloppy Joe semiotics, um, uh, but I really could you just not. Make that up now. I did make that up. Now I know you think I've been rehearsing that all week. But, no, I want to use it. Uh, I, I was actually what I was trying to do was remember the exact uh, words to an Ezra Pound uh, quote about signs and symbols, which would be much more erudite and impressive. And now I can't remember it, but it's something about uh, you know uh, symbols and uh, signs are better than symbols because. Symbols are, you know, once the symbol has changed, you're in trouble, but the sign can reinvent itself. Um, I, I don't know that Ezra Pound would have liked this show any more than I do. Um, but uh, uh, I want a champion of David Shrigley to lead this discussion. Who's a cha- who, who loves this show? Not me. <laughs> um, uh, somebody recommended it. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, okay, um, Peter, where did it leave you? The thing that hit me when I left the show was I was reminded of an old Faulty Towers episode called The Germans. Oh, yes. Don't mention the war. Don't mention the war. Right. And he goes up, you know, where he's been hit on the head and he's a little... So he makes these tasteless jokes to the group of German tourists who are at the table and he has these awful puns like tonight, our special, one of our specials is Eva Prawns. Right. You know, and he goes on like this, and finally the woman at the table breaks down and cries, and Faulty, you know, says in his officious way, why, why is she crying? And he says, can't you see? It's not funny. And the part that reminded me of the show is Faulty stands back and he says, not funny, not funny, meaning I've given you my A material and you don't think it's funny completely oblivious to, you know, to the, and I went out of there thinking, it's, it's not funny and I'm, I'm convinced that I'm missing something. You know, there are, are layers of, this is so obvious because it's supposed to think it's, you think it's obvious and then, you know, certain other little layers peel back and reveal itself. The two things that I thought I genuinely got a chuckle out of, and I don't know whether that's the point of the show, was the traffic light over the little kind of pet Cat doorway yes. yeah. be through the thing. I thought that was funny. And the other one, having worked in, in journalism, was one of the word pieces that said news, colon, something new found yesterday. Right. Which yes. I thought, those two things, fine. But yes. a lot of the rest of it, mm. and... And I'm, part of the reason I'm thinking about this, I'm easily influenced, is that I noticed that the New Yorker Talk of the Town did a little interview with him. Right. As if he were, you know... Well, it turns out he is something of a celebrity. When I uh, expressed my bemusement at this show to a, a young friend, she said, oh, yes, the show sucks, but he's, he does great... He does great movie... Uh, he does great um, uh, pop... Uh, videos. Uh, he's uh, he's done great MTV things. That's where his genius lies. So I uh, actually went on to YouTube and didn't find the great one. Um, but um, I something that that did strike me as kind of interesting is that there's a big book about him on the, at the sign-in desk. And uh, I, I turned, I opened the first page, and the Independent said, uh, you know, witty, outrageous, da 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 da. And this is a newspaper I like and respect, and lots of different people saying, you know, you know, great humor. And I thought, oh, well, okay. And I flipped through, and actually came across one that was 
pretty funny, actually. It was a man reading a sort of newspaper, and on the back it said sport, and on the front it said misery. And I thought, yeah, that's, that is a newspaper. It's got, you've got misery at the front and sport at the back. And, uh, um, but I thought, maybe the, you know, he does cartoons for the general public and pop videos, uh, which have a kind of iconoclastic humor that sometimes works. And then he does this in an art gallery, and he takes some of the humor out uh, because he thinks it has to be art. Um, Paddy, did you laugh? Uh, not yet, but um, <laughs> I mean, we did an interview with him a while back um, that we ran on the site, and he had said that he throws out about 70% of his work. And I guess my sense with this show was that it, this was, this should have, so a lot of this could have fallen in the 70% that he just like um, edits was he, out. Was he talking about his cartooning or about his gallery work? His, uh, a lot of his cartoons and quicker things, but you know, um, I I thought like I like the I like the pet door with the the stop sign. I like the blue cat that had the words "kill your pets" mm-hmm. on the front of it. I thought that that was kind of funny, um, and uh, I like the two cats that said. Um, they had. There were two black cats that said, yes. "It's okay. It's not okay." Right. Um, and I kind of like that these two identical cats would say the exact same, were uh, the exact opposite um, thing. Um, although I don't really have a great explanation for that. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that just was kind of boring. Yes, um, but uh, art only has to be interesting. So this is this art, David. No, it's it's. I'm really surprised by the, you know, by the show because Anton Kern is a good gallery and they show good artists and they usually put on good shows and this was pathetically. And he's uh, had good shows there. Too. I, that, and, I, and I'm sorry because I've I've missed those, and I did look I did look at um, no I I. I was unfamiliar with his work. I did look through books of cartoons and online, and yeah, one in one in ten was reasonably okay, and the rest were pretty average for sort of alternative newspaper stoner cartoon type art. Uh, and you know, so it's nothing special, the cartoons. But whatever life was in the cartoons does not make it into bronzed, uh, you know, bronzed words, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bronze letters saying saying words or. You know, even worse than bronze, neon, you know, saying backwards burger. Uh, you know, there's so many artists you can, you, who have done interesting things with words, you know, mm-hmm. including cartoonists like mm-hmm. Stein, Saul Steinberg with, you know, uh, you know, charging yeses coming down a hill, going into obstinate no's and that sort of thing. That, uh, you know, there's, the bar is very high. Uh, and, you know, Ed Ruscha had a brilliant show at Gagosian, you know, very, you know, stunningly austere. I, you know, ideas about uh, sloppy Joe semiotics, if you like. Um, it's a great phrase. So, so uh, you know, but the artist that comes to mind who I want to compare him to and is Bob and Roberta Smith, who's a, mm. a, a British artist who has, you know, strong class consciousness. Uh, all of his work is funny. All of it's bright and beautiful to look at. It. There's just uh, sign painting 
uh, enamel colors. Uh, there's a kind of utopian idealist naivety to them, but also self-deprecating humor everywhere. And for all of their particular, you know, what I'm assuming is a kind of particularity of their place in British society, and in, in you know, coming from a provincial. I think he comes from place, someplace like Hull. Muckles, Macclesfield. Thank you. Uh, you know, if all of the class consciousness of that work, it travels. We know you, when I, I, I did a terrific show at Progy Boiler last year, or a couple of years ago. Uh, and so the humor travels. The ideals Oh, sorry, sorry. Bob Roberta Smith from Hull, yes. I, I think I, it's Strigley that's from Macclesfield. Okay. Carry on. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, uh, you know, so it is not, it is possible that, you know, I'm missing some of the regional humor in Strigley's work mm. in the show, but it, it, it doesn't seem like it. Uh, whatever you know, whatever was there, it does not traveling to Chelsea, and and just you know, even the the back room stuff, which particularly references Christopher Wool's work, you know, mm. and Wool's you know, like him or hate him, he has a kind of austere hermeticism mm -hmm. that's powerful, uh, and you know, so so that would be funny if he did a kind of takedown of Christopher of Christopher Wool in that work, but it, none mm -hmm. of those phrases are. Uh, I guess the one that Peter pointed out, I, I missed that, and I kind of liked that. There's something about handwriting, which was kind of funny. That's my favorite one, yes. But they, they, liked my, they like my handwriting, but I don't. And it's very hard to read. You have to read it carefully. Yeah, so, you know, but none of them are funny enough, mm -hmm. you know, uh, no. to make much of an impression. So I'll just leave it at that. We might. I mean, I just don't think that, like... I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but my impression of Shrigley is that he kind of, like... He um, is also like very involved in the music scene, and that, that's like maybe his strength is not, yeah. um, you know, making art like historical references just because it's not where his main interest lies to begin with. Right. I think my friend was right. The music videos is where his where his heart is uh, is at, so to speak. I I kind of I'm from the same little island, and I find uh, so you know. I, I'm from the same, not the same region of the same little island, but um, uh, yeah, there's a sort of um, English eccentric uh, mixed with angry proletarian sort of feeling, but it's sort of, it's Tracy Emin without any libido. So I, I sort of kind of, uh, kind of inclined to give him the advice that he actually puts in one of his text pieces, uh, fuck off back to the library. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. See you next time.